0: Love, talk
1: Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dalberg. I'm
2: Mary Alice
1: You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play, and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on creativity and play is science writer Jonah Lehrer. Jonah is a contributing editor at Wired and a frequent contributor to The New Yorker. He writes for The Wall Street Journal and regularly appears on WNYC's Radio Lab. He's the author of How We Decide and the newly released Imagine How Creativity Works. Jonah Lehrer, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you for having me on. Well, the subtitle of your book, How Creativity Works, sort of begs the question, how does creativity work? (laughs) What are the big ahas that you're uh, sharing with us in the book?
0: Um, Well, you know, I can see you're starting off with the easy questions. Um, It's complicated. Uh, I think for too long we've indulged in oversimplifications of creativity. We've outsourced it to the muses. We've pretended that creativity is a singular thing. Mm that it's all or nothing, that you either have it and you're a creative type or you don't, in which case you're kind of screwed. Um, you're just doomed to repeat the work of others. And I think all those myths are false. Creativity is a universal trade. We are all capable of it. Um, the human mind is a connection machine. That doesn't mean we're all equally good at it. It's a distributed trait like any other, but it means we can all get better at it. And so in the book, I, I, I try to sketch out some techniques, some examples, some, some, some ways to boost our creativity, whether it's, you know how to get more aha moments um and the answer is a bit surprising or at least to me it turns out that what you should do when you need an epiphany is to get relaxed to take a very long hot shower to go for a walk to play some ping pong to stop thinking about the problem that the answer will only arrive when you stop looking for it um to you know why cities are such engines of innovation and why some cities generate so many more patents per capita than others the answer has a lot to do with the walking speed of pedestrians it turns out um you know I talk about why brainstorming doesn't work um, and why debate and dissent are often much better group techniques for generating creativity. So so I really try to come up with a thick description of the problem. Um, I don't think creativity can be reduced to a short bullet point. that There are five things we can all do, and suddenly we'll all become Pablo Picasso. If it were that easy, Pablo Picasso wouldn't be so famous. So, so, you know, so I really try to delve into
1: the subject and do the complexity of the subject justice. And you've set up nicely several of the uh, themes we can come back to, including, you you mentioned uh, early in in, uh, some of these ideas, the idea of connectedness. And the other piece, just picking up from the opening of your book, the epigraph uh, to the book is from T.S. Eliot's introduction to Dante's Inferno, which is Hell is a Place Where Nothing Connects with Nothing. So could you pick up on that connection piece? What's, What's the connection between connections and creativity?
0: Well, I think the connection is, you know, very intimate. Uh, Steve Jobs once said creativity is just connecting things, and I tend to agree. I think we, we, in a sense, have overly romanticized creativity. We've pretended it's a mystical thing. Well, creativity is really just a new connection between old ideas. We don't really invent anything out of thin air. We simply connect ideas that already exist. Um and that's why you also see a multiplier with creativity. It's why creativity is accelerating. When there are more ideas out there, there are more connections we can make and that's a good thing. So so, you know, I think in its most literal sense, and, and this is where I think looking at the brain helps a little bit. Um it it, it, it clarifies the mystery that, that creativity is really just about connecting old ideas. It is a new and useful connection between old ideas. And what's surprising, and, and what Steve Jobs also pointed out, of course, is that most of those connections are going to come from other people. They're going to be inspired by random conversations on the sidewalk, by by meetings in the office water cooler, um, by, by just serendipitous chats. Um, so that's why, for instance, studies show that the more diverse your social network is, the more creative you are. And for entrepreneurs, this can be a huge, huge thing. So Martin Reff, a sociologist at Princeton, has found that entrepreneurs with more diverse social networks are three times more innovative than those with predictable social networks. So it really is about who you know in large part.
2: Hi, Jonah. Um, Much of what you have researched and written about in your new book mirrors my own experience in creating. There are times when I know I'm getting close and perseverance is required and my intuition says stay the course. And then there are times when I hit the wall and I know that forcing it won't work and I need to let go and take a break. So I know you write about all of um, this and research around um, taking a break and staying the course and persevering. What makes sticking with it and taking a break both necessary to reaching our creative potential? Well, this has to do with
0: two of the modes of creativity. I think for a long time we pretended creativity is the single thing there's one way to always be thinking when we want to create something new but that's not that's not you know the creative reality in reality what you discover when you look at creativity in the brain is that it's really a catch-all term for a variety of distinct thought processes so sometimes it's going to involve a moment of insight you know one of those revelations out of the blue and sometimes it's going to involve grudging editing you know rejecting ideas going over draft after draft slowly tinkering with the idea until it's perfect both both modes of creativity are necessary. I think when you talk to creative people, they 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 often describe both. They'll often begin by describing the epiphany, and then if you press them, they'll eventually confess that yes, even that big idea still needed lots of work afterwards to make it suitable, to make it perfect. Um, so 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 both are essential modes of creativity. And what I try to do in the book is sketch out a guide, give people some tools to do a better job of diagnosing their creative process because sometimes you need that epiphany, sometimes you've hit the wall, and that means you should find a way to relax. And and sometimes you feel like you're making progress on it. The technical term for that is a feeling of knowing. It's this wonderfully eloquent and evocative phrase. And if you've got a feeling of knowing, the science suggests you you should keep on working. You should chug caffeine. You should do whatever it takes to stay focused on the problem. Um, because, you know, you'll eventually get there as long as you feel that sense of progress. So, you know, as you point out, these are intuitions creative people have been relying on for a long time. I think the science can help clarify their
1: wisdom. Picking up on the the brainstorming topic you mentioned uh, in the beginning, I know that this is a topic that has uh, come up greatly in the uh, pieces you've been writing and and speaking about in the many, many, many interviews you've been doing lately. I seem to have caught you everywhere, and uh, so it's great to have you with us. (laughs) Uh,
2: uh,
1: And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that I used to run the organization that Alex Osborne started, and I I know you write about him and his work with brainstorming, and so, of course, a lot of people that I know and have worked with in this field, I think would step back a little from from your argument that brainstorming doesn't work. And I'm wondering if you sort of build on that in terms of the role that it plays when it's sort of in the bigger process of creative problem solving, creative thinking, and not just sort of the, you know, the throwing wild ideas by itself, that I think is where you're talking about it doesn't really work. Um, yeah. So are, are there sort of the bigger processes that you're seeing in, in current science where, it works in in different ways than than again just that particularly limited way of brainstorming.
0: So so I think where you know where creative where where brainstorming fails. I'm talking here primarily about the you know the classic model of brainstorming as I'm, you know, it's outlined by Alex Osborne, um, and and of course there are many varieties of brainstorming. But in general, when people use the verb, um, they talk about a group collaborative technique in which creativity. Which, excuse me, in which criticism is outlawed, in which the very first rule is often in the sense that you shouldn't criticize the work of others, the assumption being the imagination is very meek and shy, and if it's worried about being criticized, it'll clam up. It won't be able to fully express and free associate. Um, you know, the, the literature is is pretty clear on brainstorming, at least as a test in the lab. Um, if you look at brainstorming as an idea generation task, so as a group mode, Um, in which the goal is to generate new ideas, um, and that's as Alex Osborne outlined it, Um, it doesn't seem to work. At least it doesn't seem to work as well as other modes of group interaction. The most effective mode of group interaction for creativity, and this has been demonstrated numerous times in study after study, um, I think the most convincing work has been done by a psychologist named Charlene Namath, at UC Berkeley, suggests that criticism is actually helpful, that groups that feel free to engage in debate and dissent are better at generating new ideas, and these ideas are rated as more original by an independent panel. So so I think not only have we discovered that brainstorming doesn't often work, um, that in many instances people who work alone on a problem do better than people who come together and brainstorm in a group, I think we also have a useful model for how to make it better. Um, you know it 's not that group creativity isn 't essential. I think group creativity is essential it 's becoming more important because our problems are getting harder. They require people from different fields to collaborate but But I do think that that we can make these group meetings more productive that 's often by incorporating debate and dissent because it 's debate and dissent that really wake us up that force us to dig a little bit deeper to get below the superficial surface of the imagination. And that's when interesting things happen. Now, to get back to your original question about, you know, should we just stop brainstorming altogether? I actually don't think so. I think brainstorming can be useful. It it can help build employee morale. You know, it's a feel-good creativity technique because we can all come together and feel like we contributed. And, and, and that's important. You know, that is a very important part of working together in an office. I think it's also a great mixer. It's a great way to get people to mix and share ideas and start those horizontal interactions that we know are very important for organizational creativity. So I don't think we should necessarily stop brainstorming. I just think it's important to be honest about what the scientific literature suggests, which is that as an idea generation task,
1: there are more effective ways to work together. I don't know if you came across in in your research with Alex Osborne uh, when you were talking earlier about taking a shower, taking a walk, stepping away from when you get stuck in the creative process. Um, I I recall a, a story from his work as um some people know he's B O yeah. and E B D and O advertising and used to uh live in Buffalo but work in, in New York City and and uh talked about riding the train back on the weekends between New York New York City and Buffalo in this this incubation period that happened on those long train rides and again, just sort of picking up on this idea of the incubation and the stepping away in general, and, and again, wondering if you came across that particular story in, in the work you were doing around his, his uh, early work in the field of creativity.
0: I did, I did. I actually, you know, I've read... You know, just about all his books, I think. Um, you know, he wrote a series yeah. of bestsellers, and, uh, and and they are very readable, very interesting. Um, and he talks about a lot of ideas that I think have been validated by the scientific literature, such as the importance of incubation, the importance of sleeping on it. Um, you know, I think his larger point with brainstorming is, is actually really valid, too, which is the importance of group collaborations. Um, you know, I think the evidence is very clear, as Osborne points out. You know, he he talks about the success of BBDO being then being inseparable from this desire to work together, that, that that the days of the Don Draper working all alone in his office, those are long gone. Um, so he's got this one great chapter, too, on like visiting B.F. Goodrich, the tire manufacturer, and being so impressed by all these different scientists working together and collaborating, wanting to apply that model to advertising. So I think there's a lot of really good insights and ideas in Osborne's work. I just think it's unfortunate that, you know, one of his methods, brainstorming, which he's become closely associated with, that it, it just doesn't seem to work as he wished it had. Um, it doesn't seem to be the ideal idea generation task. Um, but that's not something we should hold against him. You know, He did a wonderful job of, I think, pointing out that creativity is a universal trait. That's a very important idea. Um, and that we can get better at it. And so that's why I think his books were bestsellers. That's why they were so influential. So I think there's a lot to learn there. Train rides really are great, um, and that's why, you know, when I take the train on book tour, I actually force myself, you know, at least for a few minutes to just look outside the window and daydream and not just be checking my email all the time. Um, you know, I remind myself that, that that it's not an accident that people who daydream more score much higher on tests of creativity. Yep.
2: I've had a great deal of fun with improv over the years, and I noticed your story about Second City and also Yo-Yo Ma and how um, he plays with his music and Let's Go. And I wonder what you have to say about those two, uh, Yo-Yo and Ma and um, Second City, and letting your mind go. Yeah.
0: You know, it's easier said than done. I mean, for me, I think one of the most mystical acts of creativity I can imagine—it just—it boggles my mind when I think about it—is you know what what people do in the improvise. Whether it's John Coltrane walking out on stage, having no idea what he's going to play, and yet he knows he's going to be able to play for an hour, pour beauty out of his instrument, even though he doesn't quite know which notes they're going to be. To be able to spontaneously event invent beauty in the moment—that just strikes me as extraordinary. Um, And, and, you know, it's it's extraordinary when you watch teams at Second City. They are so talented. And to watch them, a troop of performers, they go out on stage in front of an audience, and they have no idea how they're going to make them laugh, but they know that they're going to laugh. They know that they're going to come up with something funny in the moment. Um, So I really wanted to understand how this process happened. Um, And so, you know, I do think there's some interesting science on it. Scientists have actually put jazz pianists, in brain scanners and studied what happens in the seconds before they begin improvising and it turns out one of the consistent results you see is that they inhibit their inhibitions they silence a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex it's a bit of brain just behind the forehead and it's closely associated with self-control so this is a brain area that allows us to raise our hands in the class to delay gratification to do all these things that we associate with maturity and that's a very, very good thing. But when it comes to improv, this brain area seems to also hold us back. So, so that's why jazz pianists can, in the moment, just switch it off like a light that allows them to create without worrying about what they're creating. And I would argue that something similar is going on with comic improv. So I got to watch you know second city performers get ready for a performance, and, and they do stuff like they actually call it "getting out of your head," uh, which is quite interesting. They're trying to kill the censor, as they put it. Um, And they do stuff like they make farting sounds. They have a five-minute confessional where the goal is to say something really confessional without even thinking about it, something embarrassing and humiliating, and just get it out. So they do all these exercises that are really about letting themselves go, learning how to say and talk without interference from the censor. So, you know, that seems to be a consistent theme among improvisers. They have to learn how to let themselves go.
2: And to allow themselves to fail. So a couple words you used in the book, which were in bold print to, for me anyway, was "fail big." So how yeah. do you fail big and create from that energy? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite
0: quotes in the book comes from Lee Unkrich, who's a director of Toy Story Three, part of the brain trust at Pixar. And I was asking him about you know what what the secret sauce at Pixar is, and I'm paraphrasing here but he's got this wonderful quote about, you know, too many companies are all about failure avoidance. They assume the way to succeed is to not fail. But failure is simply part of the creative process. If it, you know, if it were easy, if it didn't require failure, then it would have been done already. Um, so, so he, you know, he described the Pixar model as simply trying to fail as fast as possible and then fixing it, realizing that everything we do is going to go through iteration after iteration, but if you go through enough drafts after four and a half years, you're going to end up with a pretty good 90-minute cartoon. So, so, you know, personally, I find the Pixar model inspiring. Um, you know, I think it does tell us something interesting. For me as a writer, it's been very useful simply knowing that that first draft is never good. It's simply the first draft of a long process. So I think we have to be honest with kids, you know, uh, Creativity is going to require work and draft after draft. It's going to require the development of talent, and that takes thousands of hours of practice. So I think we have to be honest that that failure is a part of creativity, that, you know, as Bob Dylan once saying, there's no success like failure. So don't be afraid of failure. Learn how to embrace it. See it as an educational tool. See it as part of a longer process. um, And see it as completely inseparable from success.
2: Does that connect with your quote, the young no less which is why they often invent more and in your idea of channeling your seven your seven year old as an adult
0: i think it does you know one of the reasons kids are so effortlessly creative um why when you give a kid a piece of paper they just want to draw all over it um is because the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is part of the brain which inhibits us um, and of course allows us to delay gratification um you know, it doesn't develop until pre-adolescence, until we're ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. So it helps explain why educators often refer to it as the fourth grade slump of creativity, which is about it's about in fourth grade where all of a sudden kids lose interest in spontaneous invention, spontaneous creativity. Um, so so this helps explain also why. Yeah, this is a very clever experiment. When you prime adults to think like a seven-year-old, so you simply have them write an essay, a short essay, from the perspective of themselves as a little kid, but they then score higher on subsequent tests of divergent thinking and creativity. Um, you know, I think we can recover the creativity we've lost with time. Um, we simply have to remember what it's
1: like to think like a child. The, uh, the fourth grade slump is, is- interesting part of the research which i think goes back to the 1960s and i i've often thought you know given that that was the swamp in the 60s and given where we are today and all the things that continue to seem to get in the way of our creativity starting with us as children and and included in that the, the, the fear of failure you were just speaking about you know i often think it's it, it, no doubt just probably even younger grades than the fourth grade it was you know 40 50 60 years ago um uh, when the when some of that was uh, started being uh, looked at on the research yeah. side. So, yeah, yeah, and, know, and the, it seems so obvious, you know, when you're when you're talking about the role of fear and in creativity and learning, and yet how difficult it is to do both in the classroom and the workplace, and and to phrase that as part of the process. Absolutely, you know, I mean, it's easy
0: to dish out this advice, but if you're a teacher, you know, you don't want thirty. P- 30 Pablo Picasso's in your classroom. Um, that, that would be a very difficult classroom to manage. Um, and yet I also think we have to be honest about where creativity comes from. That right now we've got this very narrow model of what productivity looks like. The productivity is about paying attention. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the workplace, in which we assume people should you know, sit at their desk and look at their computer screen, whether it's the classroom in which we diagnose 20% of kids with attention deficit disorders, we tell them not to daydream. It's one of the first lessons you learn in the classroom. Stop looking at the window. Stop daydreaming. Focus, focus, focus. And, and we have to be honest that when it comes to creativity, it's not that simple, that our best ideas often come when we're daydreaming. They come when we least expect it, that, that when it comes to creativity, we often have to do things, engage in activities that look like we're wasting time. You know, it's a great Einstein yeah. quote, Creativity is the residue of time wasted. So, so we have to be more open-minded about how the mind works.
1: And you mentioned are already in our conversation, and in the book you, you talk about other companies like 3M, which of course is held up frequently for many, many years as an example of creativity and innovation. And you also talk about Google. Can you say something specifically around what some of these companies are doing and how people in companies seeking to tap more creativity can do things differently based on some of these great examples.
0: Yeah, you know, what drew me to 3M is not the sexiest example of creativity. You know, they make scotch tape, they make, you know, they invented tape, they make post-it notes, they make all these office products, but they also do things like they make drug delivery patches for hospitals. They make Mm -hmm. the glue that holds your iPhone together and allows it to be a touch screen. So they have 50,000 products, 50,000 employees, almost a one-to-one ratio. Um, and they've been doing this for 70 years. They've got this incredible track record of creativity. So I was interested in, you know, what allows them to sustain this creativity culture. And I learned some interesting things. They do stuff, I think, some of the most important inventions. We now actually associate with other companies. That's, that's a bit ironic, I know. But, but you know, like, for instance, the 20% rule that most people assume Google yep. and the idea that every engineer can spend, you know, up to 20% of their work week working on their own problems, their own hobbies, their own side pursuits. That was actually pioneered by 3M decades ago. They call it the bootlegging hour. Um, And and I think the real message, the real power of this is it gives employees attentional freedom, as they put it. It sends the message that, you know, we hired you because you're smart. We trust you. Um, If you need to take a walk in the middle of the day, go take a walk. If you need to take a nap on the couch, go take a nap on the couch. All we care about is you finding the answer. So you manage your own attention. You manage your own workspace. Um, So that's a very powerful message to people in the creativity business. That's something a big part of, you know, why why 3M has been so successful. Another thing they do is they really make an effort to foster horizontal interactions, to foster the collaborations of people working on seemingly unrelated problems. They hold science fairs where... You know, every year, you know, sometimes three times a year, scientists have to come together from all over the company and present their research. It really is like a big high school science fair, except most of the presentations are about, you know, adhesives um, uh, and nanotechnology, and they strike up these conversations. They also do this very interesting thing, which at first glance seems utterly counterintuitive, which is they have forced rotations of engineers. So, on average, every five years, they like move their engineers and researchers. From field to field. So if you've spent five years working on adhesives, they may move you to, you know, drug delivery, they may move you to nanotechnology, they may move you to a field that seems completely unrelated, but that's the point. They want you to apply your answers and insights to a completely different domain. And if you look at the history of three M innovation, these these kinds of transplantations, these horizontal interactions, have often paid big, big dividends.
1: And are those permanent? Uh, rotations or are those temporary? No, those are permanent.
0: So, so they will move you if you've been somewhere five years. They will move you to completely different fields and say, "Figure this problem out now." There's also so that- I, I, I actually just heard a great 3M story um, while on book tour. A former engineer at 3M told me the story. Uh, he said his boss um, created a product. Um, it was it was actually an office product that was a complete failure. Great idea, but complete market failure. 3M lost forty million dollars on it. So his boss prepared his resignation. You know, was very upset about it. Handed over his resignation letter to his boss, the the you know the head of R&D at 3M, and said, Gosh, I'm really sorry. I lost forty million dollars. Here's my resignation. Um, again, my apologies. And his boss looked at the resignation letter, tore it up, and said, Wait, wait. We just invested forty million dollars in your education. You can't leave now. Um, and this returns us, I think, to the importance of failing big, teaching yeah. people that failure is part of the process. Um, obviously, you can't have all your engineers losing $40 million, but but you support their gambles. You realize that there's always going to be an element of risk in innovation.
2: And also it supports your tip on increasing your creative potential, become an outsider, so um, that sounds to me like um, the mixture of different people and putting them in different situations um, helps them to step outside their normal self, but also you mentioned in your writing travel, um, talk about travel and sleeping on it. So how do those two travel and sleeping on it help us to get outside ourselves? Well,
0: Travel um, is quite important because it does turn us into outsiders. So studies, for instance, by Anne Golinski show that people who have lived abroad score higher on uh, tests of functional fixedness, an important class of creativity problems. Um, And that's because, you know, when we travel, we learn how to deal with ambiguity and confusion. And those are all very important things um, for creativity. So be exposed to different cultures. That's very good. You know, even just the act of physically moving seems to come with creative benefits. So when you tell people that a problem comes from farther away, they think in more you know, innovative ways um, simply because when we exist, when we work in the same place we're always working, when we sit in the same cubicle, the same chair, look at the same computer screen, we don't even realize it, but we develop these habitual ways of thinking, these tendencies and routines. And that makes life easier, but it does hold back our new ideas.
2: So, what happens when we feel frustrated and we can't find the solution to a problem, no matter where we move to then
0: the, is that, that important? Thing, you know the best advice science can give you um is take a long shower, find a way to relax um and hope that the answer arrives you know just last month um a new study came out which showed that when you get undergraduates legally drunk so not 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 one beer but several beers that they solve 30%, 30% more of these very difficult insight puzzles. So when you feel stumped, what your brain is telling you is you probably need a big insight. You probably need a moment of insight. You need to find these remote associations. Um, you need an epiphany. And, and what the science can tell us right now is that you're much, you're much more likely to have that epiphany when you take a break. So maybe chug a couple beers and go take a hot shower.
1: Just a few minor pieces of advice as we wrap up, and I, I wish we could get into the topic on the on alcohol and drugs markets. I know you've been speaking about this, but alas, we are out of time, so hopefully we'll uh, be able to pick this up with you again in the future because you raise so many diverse, important pieces of the creativity puzzle, if you will, and we want to thank you very much for joining us on Creativity in Play today and also for the contribution of your book, I think, to contributing to this field of creativity from the, since the 1950s. And I, I think your book is an important piece for bringing the public into this conversation. So thanks for the book, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It was an honor to be on the show. I really appreciate
1: it. Thanks. Joan Alaire is the author of Imagine How Creativity Works. Our theme music is kindergarten composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg.
2: And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Jonah, for joining us. I encourage everyone to go out and get imagine how creativity works, and to join us in our conversation at the National Creativity Network. Thank you so much, Jonah. Thank you.